attempted to seek refuge in a base medrash. And they realized quickly that the base medrash would not provide them with the refuge that they needed. We, we had 33 participants. I should have locked the shear at 33 participants um, so that everything would have come together. They run to a Beit Midrash and very quickly they realize they're unsafe there. So they are forced to run off to a cave in the northern Galilee. Uh, legend tells us that this cave still is extant and is to be found in the village of Pikin in the northern Galilee. And when they were in the cave, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son removed their clothing and buried themselves in a kind of death almost. And they were sustained by a carob tree, which is still growing by that cave to this very day, and by a stream of water. Living the most ascetic, rarefied existence that we can imagine, they learned Torah for 12 years in that cave. And one could only imagine the secrets of Torah that were revealed to Rabbi Shimon and his son Rabbi Lazar at that time, really secluded, closed off from the entire world, and experiencing communion with God. At the entrance of the cave, after 12 years, there appears a figure. And the Gemara tells us that the figure is Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, a figure who transcends our world and has one foot in this world and one foot in the world to come, is a, what we might say, a multidimensional figure. Eliyahu Hanavi, who's never died, stands at the entrance to the cave and says to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Man lu de la Bar Yochai, who is going to let Rabbi Shimon know that the Caesar has died and the Gzeira, the decree, the warrant out for Rabbi Shimon's death has been annulled. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son take this as a sign that it's time to emerge from their cave and to re-enter the world. Rabbi Shimon and his son come out and immediately they witness people engaged in regular life, engaged in mundane activities, Imagine the, the discontinuity between their experience in the cave and what they feel now when they see people engaged in regular day-to-day things. And Rabbi Shimon and his son say to themselves, These people are foolish. They're leaving behind eternal life and they're only focused on this world. And the Gemara tells us something disturbing. Everywhere that Rabbi Shimon and his son looked was burnt up to dust, was totally erased. Now, I had trouble understanding what it means that they burnt everything with their eyes, that they developed. A side effect of being in the cave for 12 years was this laser vision. And I was trying to understand what that might mean. So I turned to a friend. Um, My friend, Micah Gordon, told me that it must be the following. He said that, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son had seen the world for what it really was. They'd seen beyond this world. They'd experienced the world to come in that, in that cave. They'd seen beyond what a regular existence is. And that meant that everything that they looked at was with an eye of din, of strict judgment. How could it be that people don't see the truth? How could it be that people don't have the same experience or see the same things that we saw when we were in the cave? And by looking at them, they were, we might say, they were mafil them. They made it meaningless. They looked at them and they said, all their activities, all their work in this world is meaningless trivialities. It's worthless. It's dust and ashes. Now, incredibly, we have precedent for this from God himself. God 
We're told by Rashi, on the, one of the Rashis, on the very first Pasuk of the Torah, God created the world, and Rashi and Chazal tell us that God wanted to create the world with the Midas Hadin, with the attribute of strict justice, of strict judgment. That if we were to move a finger, or even think an iota out of the plan that God had wanted for us, or what God had wanted us to do, then that would have been it for us. We would have had no existence. We would have burnt up on the spot. And then Chazal tell us, and Rashi records this also and immortalizes this, that God saw that the world could not last like that. Vishitif that God combined the attribute of divine loving kindness together with divine judgment. The language in, the, in this Ma'amar Chazal, in this statement of the rabbis, is striking because it says, Ra'a, that God saw Kivyachal. God put his eyes on the world and saw that the world could not continue with strict justice. The same way that Rabbi Shimon and his son were looking at the world with an eye of strict justice and strict judgment and burnt everything up. Eliyahu Hanavi cryptically comes back to them and the voice from heaven emanates, get back in your caves. This is not why you came out of the cave. And Rabbi Shimon and his son head back into the cave for another year. Spend another year in the cave. And at the end of that year, Eliyahu Hanavi tries again. And they're allowed to leave this time, except something is different. Rabbi Shimon and his son encounter the same people working in the fields, and everywhere that Rabbi Lazar, the younger one, maybe with a higher degree of zealotry or a higher degree of intolerance for this kind of behavior, this kind of mundane work that people are doing, these trivialities, everything that Rabbi Lazar looks at is burnt up, and Rabbi Shimon, his father, heals it with his eyes. Until the beautiful coda to that story, that first story in the Gemara, the beautiful coda is that as if to convince his son of seeing the world with eyes of chesed, seeing the world with eyes of tolerance and understanding for the place of trivialities and the mundane in this world, Rabbi Shimon and his son encounter a man running in the fields. It's so beautiful. The man is running in the fields and he's holding two myrtle branches in his hands. And Rabbi Shimon says, dear Jew, what are these things in your hands? And the Jew says to them, Echad keneged zachor ve'echad keneged shamor. One of these branches is corresponding to our obligation to observe the Sabbath, and one of these branches is corresponding to our obligation to sanctify it. Rabbi Shimon realizes that this man is just a simple Jew. He's getting off the train. He's running out of the Uber. He's making it up just in time for Shabbos from his difficult work of the week. And he's just trying his best to honor the mitzvah of Shabbos in his own way. Not in a cave for 12 years, living a completely ascetic existence, but by simply making a bore mine or a bore atze besamim in order to honor the Sabbath. Reb Shimon turns to his son and says, Look how beloved the mitzvahs are to the Jewish people. And this was the healing gaze of Rabbi Shimon, the chesed, the charitable, the loving kindness gaze that rectified his gaze of antipathy for people that were engaged in the trivialities of life. That's story number one. Mesecha Shabbos, Daflamid Gimel Now, I've read this story many times. I used to teach it 
to my students in high school. We had a series of classes in senior year where we would look through some of the fundamental agaditas, the fundamental narrative sections of the Talmud. And I've been through the story so many times. It was only today that I fully understood what it meant when they first emerged out of their cave and burnt up everything that they saw. But I want to share with you something new that I learned that hopefully sheds light on what exactly occurs at the end of the story. What happened to Rabbi Shimon? Why did Rabbi Shimon change his opinion? What changed in that first year back in the cave after they had emerged the first time? Now, something extraordinary happens when you look at Sefer Malachim. Again, I promised that this would be a relatively shorter shear, so I'm happy to share the sources afterwards, but I want to tell you another story, this time about Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet. Once again, Eliyahu Hanavi is a figure who transcends. He's a figure with one foot in this world and one foot in the next. He appears at all brisim. He appears, as, we, as lore holds it, every time a Jewish boy is brought into the covenant. Eliyahu Hanavi is there. Zeki Seishel Eliyahu. This is the chair of Elijah the prophet. Eliyahu Hanavi, who was Ola Bisa'ara Shamaima, who ascended alive to heaven, who never died, and comes to us in every generation and will eventually be fulfilling his final role of history as the Mavasar Hagi'ula, to tell us Veheshiv Lev Avos Albanim, to return the hearts of fathers and sons, parents and children, mothers and daughters. He'll bring them back together. He'll make shalom between them. He'll fold the generations onto each other. Now, parenthetically, it's not for naught that Eliyahu Hanavi is the one in our story in Mesecha Shabbos who tries to navigate the tension between an Av and Ben, between Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son Rav Lazar, and tries to bring the hearts of Rabbi Shimon and Rav Lazar together. Close parentheses. Eliyahu Hanavi, it turns out, also spent some time in a cave and knew exactly what to tell people when they were emerging from a cave based on his own lessons learned in his time. Let's flash back a couple hundred years to Eliyahu Hanavi. The land of Israel is ruled by a wicked king named Ahav and by his equally wicked, perhaps more wicked wife, Jezebel, Izevel. Chapter 18 of Malachim Aleph tells us that the land of Israel was ravaged by drought, Long, long drought, which, as we know, can wreak terrible havoc on the agriculture and the livelihood of people in the land of Israel to this very day. And also, equally so, was ravaged by the scourge of the cult worship of the Baal. The Baal was a very pernicious kind of avodah zarah, insidious in its tenacity and the fact that it cropped up again and again from Chamisha Chum Torah all the way to the end of Tanakh. The worship of Baal was one that was persistent. It lasted. It was endemic. The worship of Baal was such in that time, in Eliyahu's time, that there was a cult of prophets of Baal, charlatans, who arrogated for themselves that we were the prophets, not of the true God, but of this idol. And Eliyahu Hanavi realizes that drastic action needs to be taken. He calls the Nevi'e Habal to a showdown. He brings them to the top of Har Carmel, overlooking the Mediterranean Sea, beautiful vantage point if there was one in Eretz Yisrael. And he says, we're going to have a test. 
Now, already, Eliyahu recognizes that he's in a bit of a quagmire because number one, one is not supposed to test God. Number two, the way that the test was supposed to happen, which was the erection of bamot, of unauthorized altars to God, is one that was forbidden technically. And our commentators are clear that Eliyahu Hanavi at this point did not have as clear an image or perception from God through prophecy of what he was supposed to do. And yet he went ahead with it. A kind of ace la'asot, a time to act for God. Eliyahu Hanavi says if God turns to the sacrifices of the prophets of Baal, then that might be a sign that they're on to something. But if he turns away from the sacrifices of the Nevi'eh HaBaal and turns to my sacrifice, that might be a sign that people are erring in their worship of the Baal. Sure enough, the Nevi'eh HaBaal cry out to Elohim, Lo Lahem, Atzabeim Kesef Ezahav, to gods of stone and timber, of gold and silver that do not answer. Eliyahu Hanavi turns to God and asks God to answer his carbon. And sure enough, fire descends from heaven and consumes the carbon at the Bama, at the unauthorized altar that Eliyahu Hanavi had built at Hara Carmel. This is taken as a great sign by everybody in presence, and Eliyahu Hanavi continues and proceeds to slaughter the Nevi'eh Habal for the sin of turning the entire house of Israel astray and for the destruction that they'd wrought upon the land. Eliyahu Hanavi realizes that his job is not yet done. Eliyahu Hanavi then sits in an uncomfortable position, a kind of primordial tachnun, if you will, with his head in between his legs. And it's time to ask for rain. We've shown up the Nevi'eh Habal, now it's time to bring rain to Eretz Yisrael. Elijah tells his attendant, go and see if there's rain. Look out onto the horizon and let us know if rain is coming. Now, I'll say from personal experience, parenthetically, I remember a time that uh, I was stationed at a place called Rosh HaNikra in the north of Israel. And if you've ever been there, maybe you've taken the grotto tour in the, uh, in the bottom of the cable cars in Nahariya and in Rosh HaNikra. So you'll know that there's a rocky outcropping on the top. And from that rocky outcropping on a clear day, one can see miles and miles into the Mediterranean. And if it's a clear day, even further. It was that kind of a clear day on the day that Eliyahu Hanavi had put his head in between his legs and begged God for rain. Six times he tells his servant, his attendant, go and see if rain is coming. Go and see if we're being answered by Hashem. And six times his attendant comes back and says, there's nothing there. There's nothing going on there. Finally, on the seventh time, the prophet turns to his attendant and the attendant says, Eliyahu, there's a cloud the size of a man's fist all the way out on the horizon. Eliyahu Hanavi then says to his attendant, let's run and tell Ahav to saddle his chariot and to rush back to the palace because a torrential, a hard rain's going to fall. And it does. It's a torrential downpour. The parched earth of Eretz Yisrael finally welcomes rain for the first time in what seems like forever. 
Eliyahu Hanavi is filled with the strength of God and runs before the chariot of this King Ahav as a sign of respect, runs before the chariot, girds his loins, saddles himself, and runs all the way back to the palace to celebrate this moment of divine answering, to celebrate this tremendous moment of Hashem answering our tefillot and proving the fault of the Nivei Habal. At the palace, a feast is held, and one can imagine that everybody is enjoying themselves. And Jezebel, Izevel, turns to Eliyahu Hanavi and says to him, Eliyahu, the same thing that happened to Nivei Habal is going to happen to you. You denigrated the authorities, just like Rajbi. You denigrated the authorities of this land now are the prophets of Baal, and you denigrated them, and you're going to suffer the same fate. Eliyahu Hanavi realizes that he's in great danger, and he runs away first to one location. He runs away to the desert, and he begs God for death. He says, as if to say, Tov moti michayim. Better that I die. I have nothing left in the world. I've had this great triumph, and this is what happens afterwards. I'm condemned to be hunted to death. How could that be? Eliyahu Hanavi lies down, fully expecting that this is his last. And yet he is awakened by a meal that's placed at his head, a cake, and he eats it and he is sustained for the continuation of his journey. And here's where the journey gets surreal and has strong echoes of what happens to Rabbi Shimon and his son centuries later. Eliyahu Navi travels deeper into the desert. He arrives at a mountain called Chorev. The mountain of Chorev is another name for Harsinai. That's the mountain that Moshe Rabbeinu ascended to, to receive the Torah. And at Har Chorev, Eliyahu Hanavi goes into Nikrat HaSela. He enters into a cave, a Ma'ara, as the Navi tells us. And inside the cave, the voice of prophecy speaks to Elijah. And Elijah hears the voice of prophecy and it asks him a simple question. What are you doing here? Eliyahu Hanavi, what are you doing in this cave? And Eliyahu Hanavi proceeds to describe the sins and the failings of B'nai Yisrael, of the Jewish people in his time. He talks about all of the terrible sins of idolatry. He uses striking words, They have violated your covenant, God. They no longer adhere to your covenant. Eliyahu Hanavi is there upon told, that he's going to be merited to witness the passing of the Divine Presence. And the voice of prophecy tells Eliyahu that the Divine Presence is going to come and pass before him, much like Moshe Rabbeinu many years prior begged to see, Show me your presence, Hashem. Show me your presence. The voice tells Eliyahu that first there's going to be a great wind, Shover Arazim, a cedar-shattering wind that's going to pass by. And yet, God is not going to be in that wind. Then, Eliyahu Hanavi is told, there's going to be a great fire. And yet, in that great fire, the presence of God is not going to be found. Then, Eliyahu Hanavi is told, there's going to be an earthquake. And yet, in that great earthquake, God is not going to be found. Where is God going to be found? Bekol Demama. Daka, in a small, still, silent voice, a calming, soothing voice, the voice of bringing people closer, 
whispering sweet nothings. Not destructive fire, not destructive earthquake, not a destructive wind, but in the cold mamadaka. Eliyahu Hanavi, afraid of the presence of God, covers himself with his cloak as the presence of God passes through the cave, the entrance of it. And then he's asked for a second time, Eliyahu Hanavi, what are you doing here? And for the second time, Eliyahu Hanavi is given an opportunity to answer and says, again, a litany of the sins of a backsliding house of Israel, everything that the Jewish people have failed in doing up to this point. And again, those striking words, that they have violated and abrogated the covenant. The answer from God now is a very different one than the first. The answer from God is, okay, it's now time for one of your last prophecies. Eliyahu is told of two kings that he's going to anoint and also told of his successor. He's also told that he is to anoint Elisha the prophet under him, that Eliyahu Hanavi's time as a prophet is over. And all the commentators point out what happened. Why did Eliyahu, why was he relieved at this moment of rarefied communion with God, seeing the presence of God? Why would this result in Eliyahu losing his prophecy with his mission coming to its conclusion? Rashi, Radak, Ibn Ezra, Rajbam, Rabag, all hone in on the same point. They said that Eliyahu Hanavi had failed at this final lesson, at this final test. Eliyahu Hanavi was given two opportunities in the cave, in this moment of communion with God, in this moment of the highest heights of prophecy that a person can achieve. He was given two opportunities to, instead of responding with the sins of Israel, to say, I will go back and I will bring them back through tshuva. I will not be the earthquake. I won't be the destructive fire that looks at things and burns them up. I won't be the wind that shatters the trees. I'll be the, the still, small voice of tshuva. We're familiar with that from the pinnacle of our tshuva experience, from Unesan Etokef, where we say that God appears to us in the cold mamadaka, when we're all engaged in the art of repentance. It's not the rash gadol. It's not that, even though there is place for that in the high holidays, but on the Day of Atonement, it's the still, small voice of God that brings us and calls us and beckons us back through tshuva. Eliyahu Hanavi realizes this message, realizes, but too late, that he's lost his opportunity to finish the process of turning the people away from the cult of Baal and turning their hearts back to God. He was focused on their failings. He was focused on their sins, understandably so, in a way that we can only imagine to understand. We're talking about Eliyahu Hanavi over here. Where's the rectification? The rectification comes centuries later. I want to bring in a third source. Who's Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai? Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is the kind of person that the cave is a natural place for him. The cave, whether it's the cave of the base Medrash, the first place that he runs away to, or the actual cave that he ends up spending those 13 years in. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is comfortable in an all-Torah existence for himself and his son. In fact, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is famous for another discussion in the Gemara. The Talmud records on Mesechet Brachot, Aflamid Hey Amid Bet, a discussion. Yehoshua is told by an angel of Hashem that 
Torah is to be learned day and night. Vahagisabo yomam valayla. And yet Chazal are bothered because we also read in the Shema, equally important, Vaasafta deganecha. You live in this world. You have to have a mundane existence. You have to gather your grain in its right time. Rabbi Shmal and ostensibly many of the other rabbis are of the opinion, You should learn Torah. It should be a priority. We should seek rarefied communion with the divine. However, We live in a world and we have to do our best to earn a parnasa, to get our hands dirty, which necessitates leaving the Gemara, leaving the Shul, leaving the cave, as it were, leaving our Siddur, and being involved in this world. Rabbi Shimon, for his part, is of the radical opinion that all there is is Torah, and that if all of us were to just simply dedicate ourselves day and night to learning Torah, then we would never have to worry about doing an iota of work. Now, of course, that never has been and never will be the lot of many people. The Gemara tells us that. The Gemara says that people tried to live like Rashbi. They tried to live in the cave. They tried to have a Torah-only existence. It didn't work out for them. We're people. Not all of us are Rabbi Shimon. Not all of us are Leliyahu Navi. We're just grateful that they're part of our nation and part of our tradition to teach us what the ideals look like. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is the same. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai tells us to learn Torah constantly and to not be engaged in anything that emerges from his cave and says, how could these people be manichin chayi olam, leave behind eternal life and be engaged in trivialities to his eyes? It takes in Eliyahu Hanavi, centuries after his own cave experience to teach him the lesson. Eliyahu Hanavi was given an opportunity to use his cave experience to practice tolerance, to use his cave experience to look at people and to look at the world and to say, I might be a prophet. I might be able to see the presence of Hashem. I might be comfortable in a cave, but that's not all of us. People live in a world and the Torah speaks to people who live in a world and are engaged in derech eretz and in fact understand that their Torah needs to be predicated on that derech eretz. Derech eretz kadma Torah. That the Torah needs to be founded on that derech eretz, that mundane existence that makes up our lives. And Torah serves as the guidebook for that. Eliyahu Navi was given the opportunity to come out of his cave experience and to practice the tolerance of the kol de mamadaka, to practice a looking at the world, the gaze at the world that understands people, that understands that people are just trying to get by, that people, of course, understand the importance of Talmud Torah, of course, understand the importance of tefillah, of course, understand what it means to push ourselves for a communion, to see God, but also that we're human beings. Eliyahu Hanavi lost his prophecy over this, but luckily he was still alive and part of our world in order to teach Rabbi Shimon and his son, that when you emerge from your cave, the way to look at the world is not one of burning eyes, is not the earthquake, it's not the wind, it's not the fire, but it's the cold mamadaka. It's the small, still voice that brings people back in tshuva, that tolerates their failings, that tolerates their insecurities, that tolerates their infirmities, that tolerates and understands that we are trying to do our best and we're balancing and HaKadosh Baruch Hu understands
That's the voice that the Prophet needed to adopt. And he's there to teach Rajbi and Ravalazar as they enter the cave, get back in there. This is not the reason you came out. You came out to destroy my world? No. Get back in the cave and learn the lesson. Learn what it is to be mishtatef, to put together the midas hadin and midas harachamim, just like God to practice the intermingling and the, and, and, and the, the, the mixing, the synthesis of the attribute of strict justice and the attribute of mercy. It's interesting enough that we find the midas hadin, the attribute of justice, practiced by Rav Lazar, who is burning people up, and we find the Midas Harachamim. We find the Mida, the attribute of loving kindness and tolerance and understanding that's practiced by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai there in a kind of Hishtatfus, a partnership. Right? We described God earlier as being Mishtatif, as Mishatif, as partnering these attributes together, if we could understand such a thing. That's the message of Eliyahu Hanavi when he tells them to emerge from the cave. But the story doesn't end there. The story ends in the most incredible way. And here we come to really the end of our shir. And I want to show you something unbelievable. What's the coda to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's story? I said I wasn't going to share too many sources. But I want you to look at this source. This is Pirkei Avos. Mishnah Avos, chapter 4. Mishnah Yud Gimel. Now, an important thing to understand about Pirkei Avos that I heard from one of my rabbis, Rabbi Eitan Feiner, many places in Pirkei Avos, it says, Hu Haya Omer. He would say. They would say the following. Rabbi Feiner taught us that it doesn't just mean that this was a saying or a maxim or an aphorism that they would teach, but Hu Haya Omer. This rabbi or the particular person saying it was this teaching. They embodied it with their very existence. That's not exactly the nusach over here, but we might apply it to Rabbi Shimon's statement in Pirkei Avos. Rabbi Shimon Omer. Rabbi Shimon said, There are three crowns in this world. Keser Torah. There's the crown of Limad Torah of learning, of v'hagisa boyomam v'layla, keter kihuna, there's the crown of avoda, the crown of the priesthood, of serving God, of ritual, v'keter malchut, and there's the crown of kingship, the crown of ruling. However, and it's a shocker, if you understand now who Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was, and what his demus was, what his persona was, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, V'keter Shem Tov, The Keter Shem Tov, the crown of a good name, is what lies above all of these. You could learn lots of Torah. You could stay in a cave your whole life, if it's comfortable for you there. You could sequester yourself with holy books, with the Word of God, and it's surely a rarefied, and special spiritual existence. You might even see the presence of God passing by or going above you as you're engaged in that kind of work. But it doesn't necessarily translate into the Keter Shem Tov. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai perhaps internalizing the lesson that he was taught by Eliyahu Hanavi 
And the lesson that Eliyahu Hanavi internalized after his cave experience teaches us that above all else, the Kolt Mamadaka is telling us, the small still voice says, acquire for yourself a good name, a name that tolerates people, more than tolerates, a name that embraces people, a name that brings people in. And it only took the wisest of all people to tell us in Kohelet, Tov Shem Yishem and Tov, V'yom HaMaves, Miyom Hivaldo. A name, a good name, is better than anything else. Is better than the Shem and Tov, perhaps, that Eliyahu had to anoint those two kings and his prophet that took his place after his cave experience. Tov Shem Yishem and Tov, the good name, the person that is Makari Vesabrios, that brings them close, that doesn't recount their failings, doesn't recount Manichim Chaye Olam Ve'oskim Chaye Shah, doesn't list that first when you think of people, but thinks first of how to bring them closer, Lekarvin Torah. And in a beautiful way to sum this up for Lagba Omer, a day where we celebrate, paradoxically, the death of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the time and the day that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai reached the conclusion of his absolutely remarkable epochal life. This Yom HaMavet, so this Pasuk, the same Rabbi Shimon that said, Shem Tov Gabehen, perhaps had this verse in mind, the Rabbi Shimon that revealed his secrets, his deepest secrets to the Chavraya Kadisha on his final day, on this day, on Lagba Omer, to say, Tov Shem Yishem and Tov. The Keser Shem Tov is greater than everything. The Yom HaMavis Miyom Hivaldo. And a person that lives a life with the Keser Shem Tov, a person that lives life not just with the crown of Torah, not just with the crown of Kahuna, not just with the crown of Malchus, but the person that has the Keser Shem Tov, that person, hopefully us, will be able to reach the point when after Me'a Ve'esrim, after a long, healthy, happy, and fulfilling life, we will also be able to say that it's a kind of celebration when we pass from this world and present ourselves to our Maker, to our Creator, and we said we had a good name. We heard the Kol Mamadaka. We brought people closer. We practiced tolerance and understanding of God's people and what it is to be a person in this world and understood Tov Yom HaMavet Miyom Hivaldo, that the day of death can actually be greater than the day of birth, than our birthday. It is my bracha to all of us, that L'Kavad Atana Elokai, in the honor and in the schus of the great Tana, the Tana who revealed to us the secrets of the Torah, the deepest meanings of the Torah, that this Tana, who emerged from his cave experience to understand the meaning of Keser Shem Tov, that when Me'ave Esrim is up for us, we also will be able to look at it as a kind of Hilula, as a wedding day, when our soul returns itself back to our makers, coming together and saying, here, I heard the Keser Shem Tov, I have the Keser Shem Tov, and I heard the Kamol Mamadaka. I'm ready to emerge out of the cave of this world into the vast expanses of Olam Haba. I want to thank all of us uh, for participating. Uh, thank you guys for coming to learn with me tonight. Mirza Hashem, tomorrow we'll be continuing with Tehillim Shir at 7.45, God willing. I hope to see uh, Mirza Hashem, everybody who can, uh, to be able to learn with us there. Happy Lagba Omer. Thank you so much. Please, please, please um, practice tolerance and cold mamadaka in your lives. I can't wait to see you all again in person for us to celebrate the next Hilula together.